Hi, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. And today's guest is Cindy Steeb. I met Cindy at what? Uh, Attorneys for Family Health Enterprises when we were both um, presenting there, I guess. And, and so I wanted Cindy on here because she just wrote a book called Preserving Multigenerational Wealth, uh, How a Private uh, Family Trust Company Can Promote Family Harmony and Positive Family Dynamics. When you first talked to me about it, you said you were writing a book on on family trust companies. I thought it was going to be like, is this going to be a textbook? Been <laughs> <Right? laughs> <laughs> to law school. These are not, you know. Yeah. But I I love the way you put the book together because it isn't just a textbook. You put it in a context about where you came from, how it got there. Then you start with, okay, how's it fit? I mean, you talk about family businesses and things like that. Then you get into the okay, here's what it looks like. I mean, this is what it is. What the structure, the overview of the structure. But then the other thing I think is is brilliant is you have the the case studies at the end um, because that's that's where people really learn is when it, they can attach it to them. Um, so I guess you know to get started, you know, welcome. And can you just kind of give us a background? I mean, I first heard about these things like we talked earlier. I first heard about them back in the day when I had some clients with Wyoming Trust, and Wyoming had a a family trust company act. So give us a little bit about the history and why you wrote the book. Okay. And how I got involved. So how you got involved, yeah. Yeah. I, I was very fortunate. I worked for a family that had set up, they were very early adopters and they had a Delaware-based okay. um, limited purpose trust company is what they call them there. And I found it fascinating and I thought it was such a wonderful planning technique. So I very early on didn't understand why aren't more people doing this and <laughs> wanted to learn more about it. So I I am a self-professed PTC geek because <laughs> I found it so fascinating. I would literally leave work and go home at night and I would research the statutes to see what states were actually offering private family trust companies. And you know, Alaska had a statute, South Dakota has a statute. Mm-hmm. Wyoming had a statute, Nevada had a statute. So I would read, you can tell I went to law school. I would still <laughs> go home and I would read the statutes because I really found it to be such a wonderful technique. So I was responsible for the day-to-day operations in that family office of that trust company. And then I had an opportunity to work with a law firm that is a boutique law firm. And they were trustee of the attorneys. They were trustees of a lot of trust. And the insurance provider was asking, what's your succession plan? And <laughs> we're accruing a lot of liability here. What, right. what are you thinking? And I proposed that we think about a small public trust company. So we set up out in South Dakota back in 2007, a trust company called Biltmer Trust Company. So then I was exposed to a regulated South Dakota environment. And Delaware was also regulated. Okay. So I was, you know, involved in a regulated trust company and went through the audits in both Delaware and South Dakota. And then I went um, on in my career and was working with another family and they were not interested in being regulated. So I dug in and researched and they ended up selecting Wyoming. Wyoming yeah. I was president of their Wyoming trust company. So I was exposed to their Wyoming trust company. And the, you know, the, the story gets a little funny here. I actually got a phone call when I was the president of that trust company asking, you know, do you think we should do this in Ohio? It's a state statute based idea. And I had just gotten back from a really long flight 
<laughs> the delays from Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which is beautiful. But I just gotten back for a long flight and I was like, yes, let's try to do this in Ohio. I'm tired of going to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which, you know, everyone was like, you're tired of going to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And, and we went there frequently yeah. and it was for business. So I didn't have a ton of opportunities to do some really fun things. So then, you know, I said, yes and wrote what was the very first version. So I took the first stab at what is now the Ohio Family Trust Company Act and spent two years explaining to the Ohio legislators. And <laughs> in Ohio, we recall, we call them family trust companies and we have licensed and unlicensed. So many other states okay. call them regulated or unregulated. So I think that's one of the things that has been confusing for people. Some people call them trust companies, limited purpose trust companies, family trust companies, private trust companies. And they're really all the same concept and idea of a family setting up their own corporate trustee to serve just as trustee for their trust. So they can't hold themselves out to the public. So I now, and I was thinking about it the other day, and I think it's been, I think I'm in year 23. <laughs> I want to know where that happened because clearly I started as a youngster um, to be in this. You space. were 12 when you started. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, was 12, I, was I was 12 when I started in the family office, family trust company space, but it's been that long that I've been working in this space. Mm -hmm. And so I was very familiar with it. But when Ohio passed, particularly here in Ohio, and I admit to being biased, I think Ohio is a pretty good statute and there's a lot of good trust law here in Ohio. And no one was really talking about it. And I launched my own consulting business to try to do more education and share it with more people. And I kept getting the question, what can I read? Where can you direct me? You know, let me do some pre-reading, particularly a lot of adv advisors here in Ohio had not been exposed to it or very, very limited exposure. And they thought you really need to be in the, you know, billion plus family to do something right. like this, which right. is not the case at all, which is not the case. And so I kept writing small articles and I was trying to do something that was 750 words or less was my goal. But then I have all these articles out there and all the articles were on a portion of the topic, but nothing told the full story. And so I kept, and people kept asking me and I kept looking to see if anybody had written something like this. And so I finally decided that's it. I need to make one of my goals and objectives is to write a book that really starts its, and I want it to be non-lawyer friendly. So it's something that a business owner can pick up. You know, I wanted it to be something that a business owner can pick up and understand, and more importantly, see themselves in some of their family challenges through the case studies to understand if this is something they wanted to explore further. So it's really a book that I've had on, you know, it's been a bucket list item for right. my that <laughs> You can say it's been a bucket list item for me for years. And it really, you know, I finally was able, I hired a writing consultant that, you know, turned it into, it was a wonderful experience, but he definitely was my taskmaster and kept me. Right. And, and you need that. I mean, that's, yeah. Yeah. And I was able to get it done, but it really, I mean, I start with what's a trust, right. You know, so that the lay person can understand what role does a grantor play? What is a beneficiary and where does a trustee come into this? And then just weaved in lots of case studies based on the clients I've worked with over those 20 some years now and hoping that a business owner can see themselves 
and think this could be a solution. And they're not for everyone, right. but could this be a solution that would help our family in preserving and passing our wealth down to multiple generations? And I also designed it, uh, my other thing, I call it an airplane read. I wanted it something, it's 144 pages. I wanted it something that wasn't a textbook. <laughs> so funny you say. <laughs> um, I didn't want anything that even felt like a law textbook or something that was technical. I really wanted it to be, I can read this on this short flight. I, I can get through this and I can understand the concept and at least feel comfortable if I'd like to explore it further as, as a technique and, you know, can help advisors understand. I get into more technical structures, the last chapters, a lot of case studies. Right. And I literally show the design of the structure of the trust companies. I don't go into the ownership part of it because that, um, I felt like I was getting a little too lawyerly if I wanted to get into <laughs> the ownership structure. So I really, really focused on here how of my some of my trust companies are structured. Here are the committees they have. Here, here's how they're structured. So I was just really looking for something that would be a quick and easy introduction. So it's really more of an introduction than a legal text for sure. <laughs> well, and they're not like I mean, it's like kind of like family governance. It's not like there's one cookie cutter thing that's there. There are options. Right. How you're going to structure it and things. And you mentioned uh, business owners. I mean, I for most people that I know that have done this are business owners, but it's not limited to business, family businesses either. I mean, there's, you know, a lot of family businesses end up selling the business <laughs> or at some point, or they just, they got their wealth in real estate or something like that. Um, so it is, uh, yeah. And it works great for family wealth. I mean, and I have several families that we set up the family trust company when they actually had their family business. And what worked out wonderfully for them is they were putting shares in trust using a discount for lack of marketability or control when right. they've been passing it down to future generations. But they got those assets out of their estate at that discounted value. But when they sold, then the full market value went into the trust. So it was really a wonderful planning technique for the family to pass wealth for future generations. And so it, it's a, when I find it, you know, there's a saying out there that says, if you've seen one family office, you've seen one family office. Right. <laughs> I borrow that and I take it a little bit because I say, if you've seen one family trust company that I've been involved in setting up with, you've seen one because right. they're so flexible. Right. And the, you know, the one thing I've always felt in working with families is do no harm and try to create something that really helps the family enterprise. So getting to know the family, understanding, you know, where their concerns are, you know, what's their culture and really trying to infuse that into how the trust company is structured so that it is a harmonizing structure has been so important to me over the years. And I've seen how this structure, if done correctly, really does bring generations together and multiple generations and starts to bring more transparency and more education. And it really, really, the structure ends up being what is the motivation for, you know, it's and a funny thing there, when I first started in this area, you know, 20 some years ago, it was usually by the time that a family got to the third generation that they right. started to realize, you know, 
there's got to be a better way. Right. <laughs> you know, family got generation one, dad just said, mom and dad say, this is what you're going to do. And they do it. Right. You know, generation two, they've all worked together. It is generation three was normally when, wait a minute. Yeah. But wait a minute. You yeah. know, we now really know spousal influence. Right. We are now geographically dispersed. Right. And now, you know, I say there is no more boots under the same table. Like G2 heard stories at dinner all the time. They right. probably worked in the business and were very familiar. And now I try to use an FTC, and I think I use the analogy even in the book, is try to bring all the boots back under the same roof, at least. So mm-hmm. let's bring everybody back kind of under the same roof, hearing the same things. But, you know, it was really in the beginning, G3, that really realized what was happening as they were distributing shares or gifting shares down to future generations. And, you know, trusts are being used more and more. And, and right. I only see that increasing with the lifetime exemption where it is now. And, the the risk that it's you know set to sunset at the end of 2025. I just see trust increasing. Right. So now you have this family. Where are they really all together? Well, they're really all together as trust beneficiaries, and they have beneficial ownership in the company. So it's really started to change. But back to the G3 is where I used to. That's where I got the phone call. So it was really when we were down to G3. And I've seen a complete pivot in the 20 plus years. And now I'm getting more and more calls from the wealth creators. So G1 or mm-hmm. G2 may be involved or, you know, adults are getting close, but it's it's much sooner that, you know, they're starting to realize. And, and I think the estate plan and the exemption has driven a lot of that, right. that they're doing a lot of transfers into trust. And the breaks usually come screeching to, okay, let's put your family business in a trust, put it outside your state, you give up dominion and control, and the bricks come on because they're right. like, who's going to be the trustee? Wait a minute, that's not me. <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, I want to, I, I, I still want to be involved. And, you know, with the FTC, the grantor still can be involved. They can be on the board. They can be on the, you know, certain committees, not all committees, oh, but they can God. be on certain committees. And so suddenly... So you can get comfort level. So I've really seen a shift and it's really G1s. G1s mm-hmm. are starting to realize. And I think more and more stories they hear that they want to avoid. Right. And, you know, right. how do we educate? You know, how can we do that? And again, you know, I really looked at the family trust companies. Where truly, where are families all together frequently? Frequently, they're all trust beneficiaries. Some may work in the company, some may not work in the company. Some may be involved in the philanthropic of the family, some may not. You know, some may really rely heavily, even if there's a family office on family office services, some may not. But where's the common thread where they're all, I call it, on the same ship? Where are they all on the same ship together? You know, they're all on the same, you know, boat or ship together as beneficiaries of trust. So it's a great point in the family enterprise. Let's try to bring the family together and have them working alongside each other and getting to know each other, you know, multi-generationally. So I see, you can tell I'm a fan of it. And, and, I, <laughs> and I am the self-professed because, you know, I'm the one spending my evenings, you know, reading trust statutes because I find that fascinating. Um, but I really do look at it as a technique that's really at least worth understanding if it would work for my family or not. And do I think this is something that could keep the family together and educated and, and as I say, rowing in the same direction. 
together. Yeah, and that really is more as much as anything is getting the awareness out so that people know it's out there and it's an option so that they can make an informed decision. Because I think, right. you know, right. and, I, and I think and I you're think right. That's, been the new, that's what's been missing is right. there just hasn't been as much education as I know I would like to see. And it's still very, very new to a lot of advisors and certainly to, you know, business owners. They've, they've not. And I frequently hear that. Why haven't I heard of this before? Is this new? And well, it is relatively new in Ohio. So it passed in 2016 and became effective in September of 2016. But, you know, but then I say it's maybe new to Ohio, but it's been around for a significant amount of time. So this is not a brand new technique, but it is, you know, we've had the, the geographical barrier of what do you mean it's a Wyoming? Uh, why, yeah. Why do I have to be in Wyoming when I live why in Ohio? Right. <laughs> you know, or why do I have to fly to South Dakota? So right. you know, for the public trust company, we physically go there um, for board meetings and you know, so those were the barriers and they are states that weren't close to Ohio necessarily. So, you know, it's not something that as many people are aware of. So thank you for letting me be on your podcast, because again, I'm trying to get the word out and really Ohio with licensed and unlicensed has some really good opportunities here in Ohio. It has more flexibility in some of the other states too. And I, you know, I, that's, like I said, back in the day, I found out about, cause I, clients that had Wyoming Trust, but they were in Colorado. So they had to go to Cheyenne. <laughs> that's a little closer. That's a little closer than Cleveland yeah, to Jackson. Yeah, Cleveland <laughs> to Jackson all the way. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, I think you're I think you, you said two things I think are really right on. One is about the the tax act. There's families now looking at it going, okay, we're okay right now because it's you know we, we can pass 25, 20, whatever it is million between the two of us, but not in 2025 of its sunsets. And, you know, I'm old enough to remember back in the day when we had the 2000 tax act that was going to sunset in 2010. And we all knew that we're drafting these documents. There is no way it's going to sunset because Congress is never going to let it. And it did. Right. <laughs> and Congress it did. And it did. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I, seriously? I, I was there. It did. <laughs> it did. And so, you know, same thing here. We don't know really what's going to happen in 2025. And so you have to be ready. Right, and I think the other thing about G one, I think there's more and more uh, education amongst that generation now, and they've seen peers that have had, you know, gone bad, and uh, it's no, it's not a theory anymore. I mean, once you have one of your friends that family that goes through it, it's no longer a theory. Uh, it's something you you really need to do. And it's funny you mentioned that. I have two clients that recently specifically referred to that, that mentors in their lives, they realized and are now watching what didn't go right. Yeah. And they're paying attention and they're learning from that. And I think that's very refreshing to watch <clears throat> that, <clears throat> excuse me, that they're learning from that and wanting to do it differently and be proactive about education and involvement and what is the right timing and what role does a spouse play? And <clears throat> do they, you know, do we bring them in through philanthropy? Do we bring them into through education? And that's what the great part about an FTC is the structure so flexible. I have families that the motivation was they wanted their kids, they wanted to be on the board of directors. You know, I have a family, they wanted the kids 
late 20s, early 30s, one married, one not married, one works in the family business, one does not. But they wanted to sit at the same table with them. And they did something else I thought was very insightful and very interesting is not only is the legacy advisor on the board and has a seat at the table, they interviewed and they have a kind of a rising advisor that is someone new that they wanted to sit at the table with as well to make sure that advisor, although closer in age to the kids, had an opportunity to sit at the table to hear the family values, hear what was important to them, hear the history, hear the stories, so that they also wanted to make sure that they were comfortable with that individual. So, you know, they right. could, you know, continue to appoint them to the board. Um, but they wanted to make sure it was a good fit for the family and to feel comfortable that their kids also were creating a relationship with an advisor who really understood and knew knew the family. And so there's those that want to sit right at the table. There are others that are, <clears throat> excuse me, they're not quite ready to sit at the table, but let's put them on committees. Right. So they're on committees and we so start to do more it. education, right? Mm -hmm. They're involved, more education programming. And, you know, for the, from a, and, and the education doesn't have to be just financial about trust. Right. It, it can be in a number of topics, but it's also supported by the trust because it's the trust company doing, you know, activities and work for the family members. So it, it was a way of, of trying to figure out funding for those types of activities as well. So it's it, the motivation is different for everybody right. to, to set them up. You know, it could be I want to still have a seat at the table. It could be I'm really motivated for my kids wanting to sit at the table with them, or it's time to hand it over to the kids. And we really want, you know, some formal structure for them. You know, I have clients that have one trust in a trust company and their motivation was they want their children to start to understand what okay. it means to be a steward, how a trust company works, how a trust works, what it means to be a steward, because his wealth will end up in the trust company when he passes, although he may make, he, he's actually contemplating doing some additional trust planning now because he's very comfortable. The trust company has been up for a couple of years now and he's very comfortable with the structure. So he's looking at doing some additional planning again, to take advantage of it, of the, where we are at the lifetime invention and um, lifetime exemption. And, yeah. I, and I agree, Rod, it is so hard. You know, people ask me all the time, what are the chances that it sunsets? And, and as soon as I say Congress decides, they understand. Oh yeah, I was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> we, we don't know. We, you, know, yeah. you know, who knows? There's certainly a lot in the camp of Congress is having a difficulty agreeing on a lot of things. And then you have the debt layered on top of that. And now we're, you know, over 13 million of lifetime exemption and right. it will index for inflation one more time right. in 2025 before it sunsets. But then it sunsets to 5 million, which was what the exemption was in 2017. Now it will index for inflation forward. So, you know, it could be six, seven million, you know, it depends upon <clears throat> inflation, inflation use yeah. calculation. But that's a significant reduction. Yeah. And that there are implications for lots of family business when you start talking about a value of 20 million if you have husband and wife, you know, if you have the spouse to utilize their exemption as well. It, it's a big difference if you're looking in the estate tax on it for anything outside of the trust or in your estate is 40%. So 
you know, the numbers start, you know, and the other thing that I have found interesting is sometimes family businesses, they're busy being entrepreneurs and they're creating wealth and they don't right. realize the value of what they're creating. And so sometimes I've worked with clients to say, okay, where are you now? And you don't have an issue now under today's current environment, but let's do some projections of where you're growing from your growth and value. And then let's layer in the reduction potentially in lifetime exemption. And it can be eye-opening. Yeah. Yeah, I've had plans. That's the pivot point. That's the pivot point. Oh, you're right. We really do have issues if we don't do something, you know, in the next couple of years. So those people that have been opportunity. We're in a window of opportunity. Those people have been immersed in the business are immersed in the business. They don't think about the you know, the wealth that they're growing. And, and it can be offside on, you know, things that they're not even thinking about. I had one family we were talking to and they have a great business, but the business is sitting on really, really valuable land, you know, and, and all of a sudden they realized, you know, our land is worth you know, more than we thought our business was worth. You know, it's like, now what do we do? You know, kind of thing. And I think that's the other- funny. I am, I'm meeting with a client. Um, actually today. And his comment to me was the value of the business actually has gone down a little bit and that's not it. But then, you know, we have 850 acres in a very, very, you know, location here in Ohio that is a pretty high profile of interest, you know, area. And, and he was so focused on the business. business, Yeah. Yeah. And the business. So um, we're meeting later today to talk about an FTC. So I can talk to him a little bit education wise. So, and I'll be giving him one of my books to read. (laughs) (laughs) Find a book. Um, The other thing is you, you hit on that, that I've seen some really interesting is as the next generation is coming up, we had one family that, um, Ryan and I were working with. Um, and when we first got started, the boys were just kind of getting involved. The two, the two sons were just kind of getting involved. And they had one great question. They, they looked at their dad and they said, and the mom had just passed, looked at dad and said, okay, you have a great team of advisors and they're all your age. <laughs> right? And so when you're gone, they're going to be gone. How did you pick these? Advi- how do we pick new advisors? How do we learn how to bring him in? He goes, well, I trusted him. Well, you didn't always trust him. You didn't even know him. I mean, so, so it was a really interesting thing to go through. And when you've got something like this, the structure like this, you deal with that as it as it happens. And they get to learn, you know, on the job. Right. That, even if and they're the just on committees. Thing, right. And the other great thing we do is even if it is their parents' advisor, they get to know them and they get to know and trust them. So right. You know, I'm sure we both have seen the situations where, you know, mom and dad pass away and they don't want anything to do with their mom and dad advisors. They want to keep their own advisors. And some of it is they don't know them. And so this is a unique opportunity within the trust company to sit at the table with the advisors to then multi-generationally get to know the next advisors. The other thing that I spend time doing when I'm setting up a trust company is Interestingly, I've not thought about this point, but you really brought it full circle for me, Rod, is we sit down and we talk about what criteria do you want the person to sit on the board to have? You know, what type of expertise? And it could be, you know, certain ages, certain involvement in certain kinds of businesses, you know, you know, as far as an expertise from an industry. You know, it could be real estate expertise. It could be that 
They want someone who's at least 35 years old or whatever age you Mm. pick. And so it's interesting because I ask, and again, frequently it's G1, I ask them very specifically to sit and say, what criteria are you looking for? And they kind of look to their current advisors and start to say, well, you know, they've been working with multi-generational for so many years or, you know, they have uh, professional expertise, whether it's a JD or CPA or a CFA, or they've been an executive or a family business, we build that into the governing documents. So even if something untimely happened to the senior generation, we've set the criteria out in the code of regulations. So, you know, we're setting, you know, we set it up as a corporation. We built out that criteria that says Mm -hmm. in the future, this is who we would like these are the expertise levels that we would like for, say, the independent director to have. Or, you know, if we've set up a family business asset committee to oversee the family business. This is the expertise because of what our family business is. We want someone independent that that's what they can expertise they can bring to the table to guide the family members. So we even think about it in the process of setting up the governing documents for the FTC you know, what is the criteria to serve? What are you looking for? And even for, we take it as far as for family members, particularly for larger families, what criteria, you know, and it's, you know, I'll talk about the spouses in a second, which that's always an, it can be an interesting conversation because it's culturally different in every family. But I've also had families that said they don't want a family member serving on the board of the committees of the FTC unless they have what I refer to as skin in the game. Okay. They either need to be a beneficiary of a trust that has a certain level of assets in it or ownership of the family business, or they need to have be a grantor and have set up a trust that has so they need to have skin in the game in the trust part of you know of the enterprise. But it's always interesting for the spouses. Right. You want spouses serving. So sometimes I joke, but sometimes it gives them a good perspective. I you know. I, I sometimes say they're outlaws, in-laws, or value-adds. Right. So they, they really come in three categories. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, outlaws being families that do not want the spouses involved, don't want them, you know, full transparency. That They leave that to the lineal descendant. Then they have the in-laws. And I have a really creative um, approach of family use that I thought was really interesting for in-laws because you are kind of. And then you have the value adds. And then value adds are, they're all in, they can serve on anything. And, you know, in some ways, sometimes they bring a wonderful perspective because they understand the family, but they don't have some of the, you know, family history or baggage or stories or hurts that have happened over the years. But I had a a family for the in-laws. So that category where they were kind of going back and forth a little bit on the outlaw in-law. And so what they actually decided, which I thought this culturally exactly what had happened with the patriarch and his wife, she really didn't get involved in the business until they had been married for 15 years. Then she knew more and more about the business and, you know, had shares of her own and that type of thing. Because at that point, they decided they felt it was a really solid marriage Mm -hmm. and it was a solid marriage that they could, you know, 
worry less about divorce. I mean, the reality right. is, you know, the yeah. statistics, I think, are still 50% of marriages end in divorce. And so they, we actually have in the governing documents that spouses can serve only after they've been married to the lineal descendant for 15 years. Then they can serve in various roles. So again, you know, if you've seen one of my trust companies, you've seen one of my trust com companies, because we have those conversations and we infuse, that's the family's culture, beliefs, values that, you know, they feel comfortable with that. So we put it in the governing documents so that you know that's how the family wants to operate and they want to can perpetuate that perspective. And that is so different for every family. I mean, that's there, there is no cookie cutter to this. I mean, I, I know that uh, Lauren uh, worked with a family that several kids, business now being run by one of the in-laws. It worked for them and that's how it was put together. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's different for every family. I, I love the, if you've seen one of my trusts, you've seen one of my trusts, you know, that's really true. Understanding the flexibility of these things. This is not a cookie cutter. And in fact, in the book, I talk about all the different committees I work with mm -hmm. because that kept coming up as I was working with families, you know, kind of your basic structure, you have a board of directors, which is comprised primarily of family members and usually some independents can be grantors of the trust, beneficiaries of the trust. So, you know, basically primarily family making the decisions of kind of how they want to operate as a fiduciary and, and even services that they might want to offer, you know, from that perspective for the beneficiaries. But then you typically would have an investment committee mm -hmm. if they're, you know, to do liquid assets and how do you decide for investments you need to have a discretionary distribution committee, which that does need to be composed of independent persons by IRS definition. And then I always have an amendment committee and that goes to the proposed regulation, IRS um, proposed reg 2008-63 that talks about who can make changes to the governing documents if, it, if you're touching tax sensitive powers. I've never had an amendment committee meet because we set the tax sensitive powers up right from the very start. So we actually have never had an amendment committee meet in all these years. But beyond that, it's what will bring your family together? You know, and how can the trust structure support that? Right. And so I have families that have the easy one or frequent one for a family business asset committee so that they can narrow down who are they comfortable making the shareholder decisions. So they're shareholder decisions. They're not operating decisions. They're the shareholder decisions. But they have a family business asset committee. The operating company has a board. Majority shareholders frequently end up in the trust. The trustee picks the directors on the operating board. So now we can narrow down in that family business asset committee. Who do you want making the decisions? I worked with one family where they decided they wanted a majority of independents on that committee because they could bring a different perspective yeah. and network and vision. And so they did a completely different, you know, they didn't want it to be family on the family business asset committee. They wanted challenge and they wanted a different perspective and selecting directors and that type of thing, yeah. which was very interesting. But I have families that have education committees to pick, you know, what education, what's important. And again, the education can be funded by the family trust company, you know, through the trustee fees and through the, the FTC, I have families that we do philanthropy committees. So sometimes they might be a philanthropic trust of which the FTC is serving as a trustee, but more frequently they may have a private foundation, but the FTC can do the administrative functions for yeah. them. But also what I have found really interesting, Rod, is 
they just having the governing structure that there's meetings and that there's a structure to call meetings. We'll just tag on the philanthropy committee meeting, not really as part of the FTC, but it happens on the same day and time, time. and follows the same governance structures. Um, then I have families that would do an engagement committee. I call it family glue. Family glue. What are we doing for family glue? What What are we doing as far as helping the kids understand the company? You know, are we doing newsletters? I actually have a family that I work with that I keep saying to them that they should market what their engagement committee <laughs> does yeah. because they are so active and they have this great engagement committee that does newsletters, does quarterly videos. Well, they'll just get on. It started during the pandemic and it's stuck. And that's so important. It's People so don't understand. I mean, we've got several families that we're, that we're working with. And ultimately, when you get down to it, is that next generation learning to be good owners. Right. Don't, don't necessarily have to run the business, but how, how do you be a good owner? Right. And that's I'm seeing more and more and more of that where the next generation, I, I don't want to be down there working every day. That's yeah. not my interest, but I also don't want to I mess it up. But I want to have inputs. How are you a good owner? How can you be a good steward in, in this particular family for the youngest of the young every other year, they do a camp and the kids come and they learn about the family business and, you know, we're are exposed to it, but it's for a week. Yeah. But they very early. With the and that's family. not all they're doing. <laughs> this has been great. Uh -huh. And I think, is there anything you just want to make sure people get from this? One of the things we've shown is this is not cookie cutter. There's so many options here. And I think the book does a great job of laying that out, especially with the case studies. So one of the key things for me has been education since I got into this space and making sure people at least know about this technique and that it is available at smaller families. And that is one part of this that, that is really, really important is this is not just for the gazillionaires. I mean, there's a lot of people that think about this is for the families that have been around for, you know, however many years and they've got billions of dollars. It isn't. This is something that if you've got a family business or you've got a family fund, you got to, you know, however your uh, assets are that are touched by the whole family. This is something that at least you need to know about. Right. And if you're doing trust planning and you're setting up a revocable trust. You need to really understand what your options are for trustee because that is such a key role. Right. And as I said earlier, I have clients, one trust, but they have lots of assets in that trust and it touches the entire family. And so we have overlaid an FTC for them for one trust. Yeah. So it isn't your billionaire, gazillionaire families right. that this can be structured to work really well for those families, you know, the smaller families too. Well, thank you for taking the time here. And the book is something you can give to the client. This is written for not just the professional. This is written for a family that's looking at what do we want to do and give them an option. It's exactly. And that was the intention. So yeah. thank you for letting me know that I achieved it. <laughs> <laughs> I achieved my goal. Thanks for the time. I appreciate it. Appreciate you. Thank you.